0: this meeting is being recorded
1: can everyone see my screen can everyone hear me Lily, you're muted we can't hear you oh sorry can everyone hear me now hello and welcome to the third episode in our series on graduate student mental health My name is Ellie and I am a second year graduate student studying cancer at the Rockefeller University in New York City. Today, we will be talking to Hassan Muhammad, who just finished his PhD in computational pathology and is a graduate student mental health activist. Hassan recently wrote a piece for Regeneration magazine discussing what he believes to be the root causes of the mental health crisis in graduate student education. In this episode, we dive deeper into these root causes and the ways in which current graduate students can begin to initiate change at their respective institutions. In this episode, upsetting themes like suicide are briefly mentioned. If you would like, feel free to skip to the timestamps in the show notes to avoid these topics. Also, as a disclaimer, the views and opinions discussed are those of Hassan and do not represent the viewpoints of our respective institutions.
2: So, hi everyone, my name is Hassan Mohammed. I'm a graduate student at Wall Cornell Medicine and I I do work at, at MSKCC developing artificial intelligence models for cancer pathology. I'm also an organizer and a contributing editor at the People's Anti-Colonial Press, an indigenous anti-imperialist analysis publication, and I'm also a co-host at the anti-imperialist talk show, Culture TV, which is launching next week. And outside of science and organizing, I, I study the political economy of imperialism, and I try to discover the relationship of dialectical materialism to the philosophy of science.
1: Dialectal materialism as a philosophy posits that political and historical events result from conflicts between social forces, conflicts that are caused by materialistic needs.
2: So yeah, I'm, I'm glad you find my article on mental health um, and, and you know, gave me the opportunity to come to your show and talk about it. The impetus for the article actually was pretty local. So at the time, I was taking this class on like diversity, which was from a very liberal perspective, not really a radical perspective. And I was pretty frustrated with the things that, that were being taught in that class, so I wanted to take a more materialist approach, and I'll talk about what I mean when I say materialist. And second, when I wrote this article, it was at the cusp of two suicides that happened in the school. Now, I, I think during my entire time at the graduate school, there have been a few different deaths, but these two suicides stuck out pretty significantly because one, they have been pretty close to each other. But of course, like most of things related to society and culture, people tend to not analyze materially. They tend to analyze them idealistically. And again, I'll, I'll get into what that means. So I was also frustrated with that Nature article. Yeah, they gave us a lot of data, but they didn't you know, point to the root cause of what's happening here. So that's where you know I wanted to make an intervention, then, and, I, and I wrote this article. Actually, part of the article was like a section of like the final essay due for that class I mentioned and I mean I even wrote this article for that class as an intervention to that class but then you know I decided to take it a little bit uh, further and, and submit it to Regeneration magazine.
0: So you know you you mentioned something pretty traumatizing pretty tragic to hear about that was like one of the things that really pushed you to write about this but at the same time you also do a great job of zooming out A lot of the content we see about graduate student mental health is very micro, right? It's like, well, our work hours are really long. We have long projects, we don't get support from PIs. But what I noticed that was super unique about this piece is that you talk about the history and the context and you talk about three crises, right? So privatization of higher education, individualism, and really the modern labor movements. So it'd be so amazing if you could kind of unpack what these mean for us and for society in general, and then we could relate them to uh, graduate student mental health as we go.
2: Yeah, exactly. Thanks for asking that. So, first of all, the main takeaway I hope everyone gets out of this is one that all graduate students are workers, and you know we'll talk about that. The second that all things are in motion, all things are constantly changing, and this is a very important point that. Tends to get over. Tends to get overlooked when people study culture, society, history, or, or anything of that nature. In terms of uh, stepping out and looking, at, looking at the bigger picture. I think this is very important because it unveils the processes underlying things we're very used to news media reporting on events and talking about events to talk about what happened but rarely do they talk about what are the processes underlying these events and this mental health epidemic across grad school you know is the same thing yeah people can talk about how grad school is tough but what what does it mean to say that grad school is tough what makes it tough and what about that toughness Leads to this mental health crisis. I'm sure all of you have to take these training seminars in your first year. And I remember in one of them, they talked about burnout. And to address burnout, they talked about time management. I'm like, all right, you're pointing to a problem that exists, and rather than you know trying to address the problems or the root causes of that problem, you're giving us solutions for it time management. I even saw this time management seminar. I mean, I can tell you one of my colleagues went to that seminar a few years ago and they told me that, you know, one of her solutions for her own life was hiring a maid, right? Like not everyone can do that, you know, and not everyone has the capacity to manage time in that kind of way. So these are things we have to consider and, and, you know, and I hope to talk about this a little bit more. But before we dive into analyzing uh, the situation materially, I want to talk about what I mean when I say materially. Um, So when people analyze anything, they, they tend to analyze it in the realm of ideas. So let's take the example of burnout. So the solution to burnout is time management. Now, time management isn't a material thing. It's like this abstract idea. It means that your life is so disorganized that it leads to burnout. So fixing that disorganization you know, is what solves the problem. But someone who's looking at the question more materially will ask: So what physical things are causing this burnout? And the physical things, I argue, is overwork in, in the academy. So t- to talk about overwork, we need to talk about what it means to be a student.
3: Brief question, if I'm allowed to interrupt. So what makes what makes a student's time management idealistic versus something like overwork material. Seemed, to me, it feels like those things are very similar. So I think I'm just missing something um, no, about the yeah, that
2: that's, no, that's, no, that's a great question. So disorganization as an idea is the abstract thing I'm talking about. It's not a material thing. So the idea that if your life was more organized, you know despite the amount of work not changing if your life was more organized there would be less burnout and, and that's the difference and when you look at it materially you're looking at the actual work the actual labor and the actual labor exploitation that's happening here you know many will argue well why are we talking about labor you know we're students and you know to really address that question we have to take a step back even further and look at education you know, as a whole. And this is where you know, I'm going to talk about how things are constantly in motion, constantly moving. Education and higher education was different in the past than it is now, and it's going to be different in the future. And it's not about returning to some golden age where, when education was good, when education was not privatized, somehow it was better. You, know, you can argue that in our, in our world, education is even more accessible now, and that's a good thing. Despite the privatization that exists, we're getting paid a salary in exchange for our labor. And what is our labor? Our labor is work which generates a certain value. And is that value? The value is conflictual capital in the form of publications, in the form of grants, in the form of initiatives for startups, as well as developing a brand for the school. And and this is what the school sells to, you know, investors from Big Pharma or other uh, other sources of income, even even like national grants. It's a brand that they sell. And this brand can include things like metrics of diversity and inclusion, research productivity, meaning how many publications are they getting out. So that's one thing. So in this space, you know, where I'm defining the student to be a worker rather than a student, there's also the question of how limited science funding is. You know, we all know that PIs are competing for, for money. I have a
3: brief question how does the fact that we, we are putting in labor into our work and that is benefiting the university, how is that relationship modulated by the fact that we do get, edu- you know, at least ostensibly, this is school and we get a degree at the end. So I think if, if it were a circumstance where we were only being given money and then we're done and we leave, that, you know like a research technician versus a graduate student, is there a meaningful difference there? Even though I would say, you know, without these labels at the top, some expectations might differ between the two, but there are definitely labs where perhaps it's indistinguishable and PIs are not investing in their students in ways that you would see in a more educational environment. So could you Yeah, absolutely.
2: Absolutely. And that's a great question. So, and this is where the question of class comes in, right? All workers can be defined differently. So then you have to ask, what is the value of this degree? Really, the value of this degree is advancing a professional career and Opening up to higher opportunities in, in the professional space. So it enters, it, sh- it shifts us from when we didn't have a degree from being a worker with only certain, certain opportunities into a, hi- a professional worker with new opportunities that can even get, you know, jobs that come with equity, for example. So, you know, that is a difference. And if you include the, graduate degree as part of the compensation package in exchange for labor, there's still an imbalance for the amount of labor value you're putting in versus what you're getting out. And their labor value is measured by the wealth that's generated by the school. So if all graduate students stop working, research productivity stops, the value of the valuation of the school is going to plummet. And you know, whatever valuation of the school may be, which is in the hundreds of millions may be in the billions of dollars, that's coming directly off the backs of Students, faculty, postdocs, and, and research technicians, right? They're generating this value. So the exploitation can be measured, right? The exploitation is going to be the difference of value generated versus the amount we're paid. And, and that's the difference. So, you know, again, I said we're lucky, we get a pretty high stipend compared to most other students. So we need investigation and we need transparency, you know, because if it is related to the lab environment, that's something that students need to know right future students should not be going into that lab maybe students should not be collaborating with that pi we called for sensitivity and leadership training increasing the availability and accessibility for resources of students from mental health and i think after this petition they announced that second mental health representative a couple years ago and a biannual survey for students to post access that would be anonymous to assess their mentors so the reaction to this petition was quite interesting first of all we got over 300 signers. And I think at any given moment, there's around 400 graduate students matriculating in the school. And the signers were a mix of postdocs, even some faculty members. A large bulk of the commentators who were able to comment on the petition were very supportive. They were talking about their own similar situations, their own reservations they had with those specific PIs. Basically, the things we said in the petition spoke to a lot of students. Towards the end of the petition, we started getting some negative comments, kind of being defensive. But, you know, we saw that something something is uh, going on here. Immediately what happened after is that the student life administrators, I'm not going to name them, you know, reached out to us and wanted to talk to us because, you know, they knew who was behind this petition because some of us have a reputation of speaking up on these things. And, you know, those conversations didn't go well. So, you know, I argue that this rise of this administrator class comes in that specific time to serve that purpose. And and now what we saw was the destruction of mass organization in the academy, which used to be huge. But yeah, I mean, when the Student Life administrator told me that, you know, there's only so much she can do or he can do. I'm like, OK, well, that tells you everything of why we're not relying on and why we need to organize students. But again, it's very I think it's very difficult to organize in the Ivy League Academy. So to keep the wheels turning, we organize a public rally, like an open forum where anyone can come speak their voice on, on this issue. None of the critics came. Some of the supporters came, even a faculty member came, you know, but it, it didn't grow into what we wanted it to grow into, you know, a student movement. Because, I mean, if you read these comments, everyone was complaining about their work environment, or at least the work environment that they observed with some of their colleagues. And, you know, it's not about giving us more happy hours or meditation sessions. It's about clamping down on the amount of work that, they, you know, they make students do. I was very fortunate in my lab. My, my PI was a great PI. He, he never enforced work hours like that, but not everyone is so lucky.
0: Wow. I mean, there, there's so much to unpack there. And first of all, so much gratitude, right, for kind of talking about that time and, and talking about your personal efforts to address, you know, what's a very, you know, painful situation for the community, you know, at our school. And then second thing is, you know, let's kind of go a little bit deeper into other crises that have brought us to this point where we are discontented with our work environments. And then as a result, suffering burnout and, you know, micro trauma that ends up building over time and and all of these and all of these things. And I think, you know, in, in the article, one really great point you brought was individualism the idea of achieving status through hard work which is a really interesting one because (laughs) that's like the premise of america (laughs) the american dream right so please uh, give us your thoughts on these things
2: yeah i mean that is so embedded into you know the the graduate school culture I remember during my orientation, who are, I forget who was speaking to us at the time. It was some someone from the leadership, and they were like, "Get ready to work long hours, weekends. Like you guys should be, you know, dedicated, you know, towards putting in the time to towards this." And he promoted it as this great, grandiose like way of living your life. And then a month later, we go into this burnout session, like teaching us to you know organize our time better. Right? It's very contradictory. But right, this this culture of individualism, competing. Picking, like, picking yourself up by, by the bootstraps is very embedded into our culture, and it just doesn't work. I mean, ideally, you know, in some utopian society where all ills of society are gone and everyone's in, on an equal playing field, that should be the way of organizing society. First of all, the diversification is a whole other story, right? Because even when they diversify, they, they choose people from specific sectors of, of class to bring into the academy. It's not like they're bringing in the Don person who who needs the opportunity they're bringing in someone who already has many opportunities and and work their way up through research but aside from that in the rare occasion where someone like that does get in filtered in they have a really tough time right because many of them are coming in with that some of them have so many other other struggles to be working on and you know between research and classes it's really tough to just pick yourself up by the bootstraps and go the extra mile to Do these extra things like make a startup or you know get the extra publication out all these things that are defining your success at the graduate school your your productivity levels like some students many students i argue are just trying to graduate right i think many will want to have this extra drive but when it comes to reality and implementing the reality not everyone can implement that extra drive so this whole like pick yourself up by the bootstraps mentality go the extra mile work hard it, it just drives in this culture more and more to the point where people feel like they have to be doing it and people will feel bad leaving work at seven or leaving work at eight they're like oh my pi you know will see me leaving even though the pi will not the pi will not have any rules around this but people will just instinctively feel that if they if they like leave or take time off for themselves so i think that the leadership is partially to blame for encouraging this kind of behavior and second the culture that creates this doesn't magically come out of nowhere right it, it is a reflection of the way the economy and production is organized and, and that's the material connection right? culture is not this abstract magical thing that can just change just because you will it to change or because you do education to you know get people to think differently Culture will always reflect how production in society is organized. And until that's changed, right, we're not going to have anything. So until then, you know, all we can really do is try to organize ourselves into mass
0: movements. Thanks for your insight on graduate school culture. I think another part of graduate school that might enhance the value of our degree is the access to other resources, such as a network of alumni and career development opportunities. Wouldn't that be a part of the compensation?
2: And there's a reason why there's such a large majority of students that are disillusioned with the PhD program in their like fourth or fifth year. You know, they just want to get out. Uh, many of them don't even want to stay in the academy. Why do a postdoc and make slightly more and do the same thing for another, you know, for five years? And you know, you say that the school offers us all these other opportunities, but again, it becomes a measurement thing. The compensation is access to these resources. The compensation is not you like absorb the resources immediately right and you can't manage research productivity which is what which is how you're valued and at the same time also go the extra mile to do these all these extra things the other thing is like we have to like take a wider scope here this mental health crisis is not specific to the tri the tri-i or ivy league academies it's specific to graduate higher education in general across across the country and you know just because one institution is offering us the access to some of these things doesn't mean you know fixing the problem and again you know even if it was more than access and we actually absorbed all this extra stuff as part of like working here our labor is still being exploited in the end and you know the other thing is like there's no control over work hours you know i I kind of dismissed the legal issue before that we're not considered employees but by not considering as employees they can get a, away with a lot of stuff I mean the amount of hours that some students work in they're basically getting paid less than minimum wage right so like, these are things you have to consider um, yeah I mean that's mm-hmm. all I want to say but the, but the main thing is you're right you know we're given all these extra things but we don't passively absorb them we have to put in the extra time to put them in and you know even doing that almost c- becomes work as well it's, it's like you're working even more to get the benefit of those extra things that they're giving you so they, so the compensation counts. Because if you don't put the extra work in to take advantage of that stuff, then you can't really count that as your compensation. Your compensation just becomes your stipend.
3: And, th- and you additionally, have- I would even say that like if it's not realistic mm-hmm. for you to take advantage of these things, if they're not structured in such a way where it's straightforward to make use of it it's like hey your holiday bonus is hidden in one of the one of the tiles in the floor in this building feel free to look
2: for it exactly that's a good point. like yeah
0: yeah absolutely so you know one question that comes to mind is the people that might be listening to this that, you know, haven't had experience with higher education, they're like, so, you know, all of the flaws on the historical, philosophical, <laughs> material, idealistic level. Why in the world would you buy into this? Right. Why would you go to grad school in the first place? It's all these things. And, you know, one idea, you know, that that comes to mind is. We want credibility at the end. And we want to show the world like, yes, I could dedicate a long time to solving an incredibly complex problem and inventing something new or bringing out a new idea at the same time. The process itself is incredibly beautiful. Learning science is beautiful. But now we want to kind of take a look at what do we do from here? How do we take action? I really like to start with small steps. So what can researchers do that are dealing with a poor work environment, that feel that there is no set limit on the amount of hours that they work and they feel like they've lost control over their lives. What are small steps they can start with to advocate for themselves and how can they go big and how do they know when it's time to organize?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So the culture of individualism plays out way beyond the idea that we're all struggling for each other, I mean, for ourselves, it also like divides everyone. It alienates people from each other, right? Not only does it alienate you from your lab mates, it alienates you from the rest of the grad school community. As time passes throughout grad school, your relationships with other grad students become less and less and less. So I think one of the most important things is refostering the connections between grad students and also advocacy to, like, to help them understand like what's actually going on here, right? There's this myth that they're following this you know, grandiose path of becoming a PhD you know, and, and getting to do science. You know, science is great and it you know, kind of sucks that science is stuck inside the industrialization of capitalism. Right? The Science is being advanced in big pharma through military. I think one in three people who have a science degree end up working on some military-related project, right? Even the department of defense funds so many so many bioscience uh, work so you know we have to go through the system like we can't there's no way to do science now outside of the system right like darwin you know, we don't have the luxury of darwin who was able to do science in his backyard for a very long time and then just go onto this boat like weasel his way onto this boat expedition that was like a colonial expedition into Latin America and like get to you know enjoy his life doing research like it doesn't work that way you know we have to get the accreditation we have to go through this process so while we're in this process i think we have to revive the old organizing cultures that were disseminated systematically disseminated by by the academies as they got more privatized right like they had incentive to disseminate them because you know if they're working with very fragile business models with very low margins they can't suddenly shift these economic plans that they have to increase the salary of students or to decrease work hours, right? Like part of the money or grants that they get is in promise that the research productivity that they show and have like to get those grants and money and investments continue, right? They can't suddenly just drop their research productivity. So students, first of all, have to make more connections with each other. Anytime a problem happens, they need to be more open with each other because as they are more open with each other about the problems in grad school, they'll realize that they're all having the same problems. As this petition showed, like the amount of like minds that were blown, like in those comments, in my opinion, where people were realizing, oh, wow, I'm experiencing this too. As if they like never thought about this, right? Until it was put into words before them. So that kind of advocacy helps unite people together as they realize that their struggle is our struggle. My struggle is their struggle. You know, even with like sexual harassment, like if more victims of it discussed it openly or had the means to do it, and you know, we've even developed some strategies to help that process because you know it's not easy to just discuss it but you know it would be good to rely on the student body to come in in the defense of labor abuses or sexual harassment and not have to go to the administrator who will put it in a file quietly try to discuss it with leadership the leadership's going to tell them you know dismiss it give them more happy hours or something and then the administrators sad that they can't help and this is all they, they can do like that's not the way um, sure I mean continue to use that you know w- while you have it but you also have to organize beyond it and i you know i encourage students to talk you know talk to each other even if you even in your own lab like talk to each other about your boss like that needs to be you know a discussion and even talk to your boss about him or herself as well um and you know i think the, the more as this happens we can regenerate the culture of organizing other institutions have it state university even like columbia university has has this But I think the environment of the extra labor that have to do with teaching and TAing kind of forcibly generates it where our lifestyle is pretty pampered. I think the school tries to pamper the students as much as they can.
1: For those of you who don't know, TAing, or being a teaching assistant, is a common responsibility or requirement of graduate students where they are often expected to assist a professor or faculty member during class.
2: I mean, you even see the the type of like personalities that come out of our school are very pampered compared to hardened personalities that come out of other sectors of academia. So, I mean, so again, I think we have this added challenge of a lot of privileged students come here. We have a pretty decent graduate school life, but obviously that's not gonna translate to everyone. So the ones who do suffer under it for their own benefit, like, you know, students have to organize. And I do think that situation will get worse and worse, right? It blew my mind that the school admitted like the same amount of students as they would also always admit during COVID, like as everything was shut down. They just kept bringing more and more students in. So, you know, there's something called the law of quantitative change to qualitative change. In science, you know it as, you know, temperature increases, at some point there'll be a qualitative change and water will boil. But this happened socially as well. I think as job opportunities industry get smaller and smaller, academic job opportunities get smaller and smaller while graduate schools are bringing in record amounts of PhD students and, and training them, there's going to be some kind of qualitative change that will happen um, down the road. Um, same thing with the mental health situation. As nu- it numerically gets worse and worse, it's going to cause some kind of phase shift and result in some, into some major qualitative change. You know, value, value yourself as a worker, value your time. Don't feel like you have to sacrifice your time just because someone's expecting you to. I mean, the people who are promoting that logic may have sacrificed way more than they should have to get to where they're at, and they may even be unhappy at their level, right? Don't just assume that everyone was successful, just happy. So, you know, just take a step back, value yourself, respect yourself, respect your colleagues around you, and rebuild a culture of, like, connectivity amongst grad students and postdocs.
0: Interesting. So really a couple of key themes that you talk about, right? So connectivity being number one, and I think zero, (laughs) number zero, if that's a thing, right, is valuing and, and respecting yourself. It's interesting how our culture currently prizes personal, psychological sacrifice, To make the science work. And one of the thoughts that I was having, sort of as you were talking, is like the nature of our work itself is tedious and time consuming. But if we plan properly, we can limit our work hours and get out of there by seven without feeling guilty. (laughs) And it's interesting, you know, how we and I wouldn't even confuse this with like the shallow and sometimes privileged notion of, oh, you just need to manage time better. It's just setting a precedent. Like I am, you know, planning this experiment, but I am not going to stay here until 7 p.m. And so I will adjust. I will fit, you know, do X, Y, Z to make sure that I'm not here past a certain point because my family is important and my mental health is important. And I think You know, the people that maybe need to hear this the most are postdoctoral fellows. Graduate students are complaining, but postdocs, I thought at first, you know, when I, when I worked, the very first time I worked with a postdoc as a grad student, you know, he was there until 12 a.m., 1 a.m., like every other day. And I thought he was crazy. I thought he was an isolated incident and that he was just obsessed. And then I tried it again in a different lab and I saw it again in another lab. And I was like, why? <laughs> why? And then, you know, in biomedical research specifically, it's just that things happen unexpectedly and you you need to do an experiment that's originally very time-consuming that you would start at like 7 a.m. that day so you could get out of there, but something unexpected happens and you can't just let the experiment, you know, implode. You have to save the situation and do what you can. It's kind of like being on call in the emergency room as a medical student. It's like the same concept sometimes, um, especially if you're working with patient samples, if you're working with, you know, a very expensive experiment that you you want to extract any data out of, right? So just to clarify kind of for listeners, it's not necessarily that our culture is you have to work these long hours, because that's the only way you'll be productive. It's just the inherent Difficulty of working with the things that we do and the systems that we do and studying the things that we want to study. But at the same time, I think it's become worse when you combine it with meritocracy. Like your value as my employee is determined by how long you stay here. When we know countless scientific studies have shown that the more time you spend at work, probably the less productive you'll be (laughs) up to a certain point. And that extent, that ceiling where your productivity kind of goes down from there is not 12 a.m., right? It's like way earlier, you know, (laughs) depending on when you get in and, and how you operate as an individual. So in terms of small steps, that's, you know, that's a really great thing. Another concept I wanted your thoughts on was allyship you know, you talked about earlier your experience approaching administration about the concerns you were having, you know, they weren't auditing their work environments well enough. And so something like this happened, you know, in relation to an abusive work environment. So, and they said, you know, we can't really, we don't have the power to do something. So how do we Make allies with people that have power. Okay,
2: before I talk about allyship, I want to respectfully push back a little bit on the other things you said about, you know, how we should better organize our time. So I think that logic falls again into individualism, where the onus of fixing this problem is on the individual. It shouldn't be that way. The school should implement hard rules against how many hours a postdoc or especially a postdoc or a student should be allowed to even put in, like. We're not in an emergency room. We're not dealing with dying patients here. These are experiments. You know, it's not like you're not just doing things for your own graduation. You're doing a lot more. So I think there should be rules around how many hours people can work. And if there's a hurt on productivity and a devaluation of the school, so be it. Right. Like if, you know, if, if overwork can lead to the extreme case of suicide or, I mean, even a mental health problem, is a bad thing. Like that is not worth the productivity that we're getting out. Now, on allyship, so first of all, students have the power. Like, the student body has a lot of power. Like I said, the student body decided to stop doing research for even one day. The headlines that would generate, the devaluation de- that would generate and hurt the school will force them to take action there, right, in, in that situation. You know, the important, important point I want to drive home is that individuals don't change things. Mass movements change things. We have a 9 to 5 work hour, a minimum wage because of mass movements. Women's right in the U.S. exists because of mass movements. Colonized nations were able to expel the U.S. imperialists because of mass movements. The civil rights movement that brought all the, you know, great changes, mass movements too, right? MLK didn't just like appear on the stage and create change for people. There was a mass movement behind him, right? So, you know, we shouldn't rely on making allies with like key individuals who, who in our eyes have power and in our you know imagination will use the power correctly or effectively or for our own interests it's not gonna happen right that's that rarely happens you know like name a scenario where an individual was able to like just give or hand out some kind of positive change it really happens it's always driven by some mass movement that's in the background
3: it's basically some sort of fantasy about a benevolent tyrant who's going to come in with the power and the insight to just make things right
2: yeah yeah exactly and you know that doesn't really happen yeah and we can't beg an individual to you know positively change things for us either students have the power students have way more power than can imagine i mean even if one lab comes together and unites and says hey i think you're overworking all of us or hey you shouldn't be treating that one person the way you're treating like our colleague or hey we see you sexually harassing this person like we as a lab are standing up against this like that's the power that that can actually change something I mean, even when, um, at the height of COVID, when all the race protests were happening, we organized a few demands for the school. And one of them included apologizing for some, you know, in our opinion, some xenophobia and, like, anti-Asian racism that the school even put out in an email accusing Chinese students of being spies. So they didn't directly accuse them. They, like, forwarded uncritically without any commentary, like, a U.S. statement about Chinese students being spies. the Chinese students were pretty upset about that. But, you know, my point is we can't rely on... Individuals, even you know, people who are in positions that are supposed to bring change uh, to to make those changes—the powers in the students, the powers in the masses.
0: I really like what you brought up about, you know, the the example you brought up about, you know, if you are in a lab setting. And I I like this idea because it's smaller scale, because let's face it, it takes a lot of courage, a lot of people and connection to organize in a very large scale. So if you are in a laboratory and you don't like the way things are playing out, you know, you talk to each other in the kind of lab group chat, you discuss grievances, you, you know, think about ways to bring the issues in a non combative, but productive way to the right. investigator, and you dedicate like a 20 minute block at your next lab meeting to talk about it. And of course, you have to make sure that you know, there's a united opinion with evidence of instances where, mm-hmm. hey, something needs to change in our lab group. And I think, you know, Even that takes a lot of courage in some cases because when you're in an abusive work environment in a very extreme case, you basically have everyone consenting to this abuse, Yeah. you know, and no one is calling anything out, basically. Which means the absence of saying no, right, sometimes in this case, right, means that you're just consenting to it happening either to you or to someone else. And Mm -hmm. so you know, if we're looking at a small scale, that would be a really, really, you know, great solution. Like, I personally am someone that respects authority. And of course, a lot of people out there in graduate education are kind of like me in the sense that they're like, hey, I don't want, you know, problems. I don't want to shake things up. I just want to, be happy going to work and have better work life balance. Sometimes that's what that's what it comes down to. Other times it comes down to I don't want to be harassed when I go to work, right? That's another that's another thing. So, how can people, you know, try to utilize what the administration believes they're offering them better? Because when you come to an administrator with a problem like you said before, it's like one, maybe you can't count on them, but in some cases, if you can, and they've provided some sort of infrastructure to deal with a chronic issue, you know, they might not actually address the issue all the way. Like you said, maybe it'll be addressed formally, but then it goes in some file and it disappears, like it no longer exists. So how do we cope with kind of, I want to say, subpar methods of solving chronic issues at institutions and using them to our benefit instead of, you know, just having them being brushed under the table.
2: Yeah, so this is a question of political tactics. First of all, I also love authority. But I like authority. But The thing is, organizing needs to be exerting like the authority of the students. The students also have a level of authority. right? It's a relationship here. The school is not like this hierarchy of like leaders and then like peons below them right the student as a whole itself is, is also an authority and organization allows them to exert that authority uh, right and that's the important thing um, but again on the question of political tactics so i'm against any kind of dogmatism that you always have to do something one way it's not like if a small issue happens you jump into like mass organizing that's not the case first of all a community of students who trust each other and are organized together needs to be fostered and i love the idea of like starting with a lab. you're totally right and if if you're listening to this and if you don't have a group chat with your lab mates without your pi make one. right and like just having that group chat is how you foster uh, trust with each other in the lab so first of all yeah that environment needs to be fostered second students have to be very strategic with their strategies Again, you can't always jump into some extreme organizing tactic like striking or, you know, rallying. Like, that's obviously not the case. In fact, I, I find that organizers who start with working with the administrators uh, are very effective because what happens is organizers can work with the student administrator. If they help, they help. That's great. When they don't help, it becomes a tool to show the other students that this administrator has limits to what they can do. They may have good intentions. They may want to help you, but they can't always help you some cases, they may not even want to help that specific issue, right? But starting there and working with them illuminates what the problem is to the rest of the students. And that actually becomes a tool to further organize students. And this is a tactic that's used in other places where students are organized, right? Because you'll always have students who have all this trust built up into administrative leadership that they don't even know. It's like you should work with them. You should try to do what you can in that infrastructure. And not reject it. Rejecting it is dogmatic. But when it fails, that becomes a tool that organizes people because then suddenly everyone sees oh, wow, this fails.
0: What do you think people can do to advocate for change at the national level? We have funding, and in this case, policymaking entities like the National Science Foundation and the National Institute of Health, you know, that have actually recently begun to regulate. For example, if a PI is charged with any level of harassment, they get their funding cut, or actually they're removed as a PI on the grant, and it's transferred to someone else.
2: There's two parts to to answering this. First of all, I'm glad that that policy was implemented of removing someone from the grant. I think this is something my group was advocating for like four years ago or something, because at the time it wasn't in place. So that's good. But you know, because it seems like if if a faculty is fired. It's never disclosed why they were fired and they just end up getting a faculty position somewhere else. It, it goes to show how the, the school, you know, will not be the, in the interest of the students because they'll let these abusers go, get hired somewhere else. They'll, they'll often get really big faculty positions, no problem, because they're, you know, valued by their research productivity and not how they behave with their, with their mentees.
1: According to Inside Higher Ed, the NIH reported that 75 principal investigators have been removed from its grants due to sexual harassment claims or those of a hostile work environment in the past three years. The National Academy of Sciences similarly reported the removal of two PIs for these claims. In fact, before 2018, a PI has never been removed from an NIH grant for these reasons, and the same goes for the National Academies. Hassan also discusses the rehiring of PIs that are facing claims of sexual harassment or abuse. Though there are very few statistics on the subject, one well-known piece of anecdotal evidence surrounds the case of Dr. Jason Lee, a molecular biologist that has held faculty positions at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, Princeton University, and the University of Chicago. Before being hired at the University of Chicago, however, he was already facing charges of sexual harassment and rape of several female graduate students while a professor at UNC and Princeton, prior to his appointment at University of Chicago. As reported by the New York Times, UChicago was aware of these allegations, yet proceeded with the appointment anyway. Although this evidence is anecdotal, it would suggest that there are some PIs that have faced sexual harassment and abuse-related charges that have left or been fired from their appointments, yet are rehired at other institutions. The question of how common this practice is remains unclear.
2: Second, you know, I think, jumping the gun and like speaking to congress people uh, about implementing policies when you can't even organize like the student body around you i think it's a bit absurd like i mean to me that's like an easy way out that also just results in something that that's not even gonna you know work immediately even if a policy is put together it has to go through all this bureaucracy and and red tape and even if it's passed, right? It takes a long time to implement and then the schools have to adopt. I think like the important thing to do is to organize students again. Because I find that policies follow. Like the labor laws that it, that exist right now, even like the feminist laws that exist on like wage equality and gender equality, all of them came from mass movements and then the policies had to follow. Right? The policies that are implemented right now, the good policies. I mean, even the policy that you mentioned, there was a very big science media movement in the past two years and I wouldn't be surprised that this policy was a result of that movement, right? So again, all of these things follow movements. So you know, the key is to organize, and you know, if you want to continue doing policy making, that's fine. But you also have to be like organizing students on the ground and doing this kind of labor advocacy that unites students together and gets them thinking about themselves as valuable workers, right? If you do that and t- and t- together, that's totally fine. I'm not dogmatic. I don't think you should, you know. Dismiss one tactic over the other because you also shouldn't just be doing labor organizing without doing legal work in in, in the current framework that exists because eventually you're gonna have to tackle that framework, right? So yeah, diversity of tactics is what we call it and you know that should be uh, primary and we should not dogmatically fall into policy making, especially when there's almost zero organizing on uh, the ground in the specific school that you're organizing for. The other thing is inter-school organizing, right? This is something that CUNY has been leading with their, with their adjunct faculty organizing, right? They're, they've been organizing schools across New York together, and I think there should be more pushes for schools to relate to each other outside of the Tri-I, right? There should be some committee where student representatives from all, from all over Science Academy across, the, across New York State or even at least in New York City can come together and talk about the issues. Because policies way more easily backed and pushed when they're, you know, when there's a united front backing you, right? Not just like one random representative from one random school speaking to one random congressperson. Like that's not going to you know, result in it. You always have to think of all the different ways you can to organize students together, whether it's in the lab, in the school, across schools, across the country. Some kind of organization is necessary for wins.
0: One final thing that I guess we could end with a lot of people that will listen to this are probably going to be thinking, well, what do I risk by organizing and standing up and saying enough is enough. I want change in some aspects. And if it means I'm going to stop working on research or a strike, I'm going to do it, etc. But why is it so difficult to muster the courage and how can people get past that? Especially if they are grad students, maybe there's, you know, a year or two left of their work, and they can just continue coping in the short term and just get out of there.
2: I'm, I'm glad you asked that. I think with, you know, you know, you said we're privileged, which means we have power and to not to be cheesy, but with power comes responsibility. I think graduate students, especially in the Ivy League academies, are in a very special situation. Like I can get away with berating administrators, being very direct and open with them. And nothing happens to me because I'm a graduate student and in an Ivy Academy. They're not going to just kick me out. They invested money into me to, you know, start my graduate school. I'm like publishing. Same, I mean, and the same goes for everyone. I think graduate students have way more power, as, even as individuals, like let alone the mass organizing, even as individuals have a lot of power. More than postdocs, I would argue. Postdocs have to rely on these postdoc unions. If you see postdocs have some kind of organized formations with each other for that very specific reason, they need it to do anything. They, I mean, the, the recent salary gains and uh, insurance gains that happened with postdocs came from that, ex- exactly that process. And it actually happened not too after this, the petition I mentioned went around because a lot of postdocs went behind that petition. But graduate students, again, especially in the Ivy Academy, have more time than other students. They have this like, power because they're pampered by the school right they're like the precious like commodity uh, of the school like they can use that and really pressure and again i think starting small is great like try to make relationships in your lab with each other Build trust with one another with that trust will just come a natural form of organizing and if anything ever happens you can you know stand up to it and then maybe uh, maybe another lab will hear about it and see it they'll see oh wow this tactic I mean, I'm not going to use the word tactic, but to me it is a political tactic, right? But I'm sure other students will be thinking of it that way. Like, they'll see that this lab is organized with each other and they were able to win something, whether it's, you know, putting their foot down on long work hours or sending up to some kind of abuse, right? But, you know, the point is, starting small is great, it'll, it'll pave the way. And I think that students who care about this stuff, who may be listening to this, who may be in the who want who, who want to make changes, should not be afraid to... Criticize the school when they should be criticized. Criticize individual administrators when they need to be criticized. Nothing's gonna happen to you. I mean, I think I was the most aggressive from my year, and even in the four years I've been here, nothing has happened to me, right? And even more safety comes when you're united, right? Even when you're united with your lab, there's safety in that. Yeah, you know, and, and at the same time, you can try to make relationships with the administrators and and, and others. You could also be public with your organizing. That's another great way to keep yourself safe. When you're publicly criticizing the school and publicly saying things, they, they can't really do anything against you, right? Um, like if I tweeted a criticism and like something happened to me, I can go to New York Times with that and say, oh, look what the school did. I criticized them in this high school. Like they're very afraid of this kind of negative press because their whole value depends on brand. And, you know, they're never going to hurt their brand. So with, you know, with all of that in mind, students as individuals have, graduate students specifically have, a relatively safe environment to organize in and it gets even safer the more you unite with other students.
0: Awesome. All right. This has been a really eye-opening and and great conversation. Thanks for having me.
3: Thank you so much for coming on. It's fantastic to hear sort of a new perspective where it's not as focused on like, you know, how how to integrate meditation into your daily life, and how to avoid burnout. One of one of the things that I think the last few years has really brought to light publicly is systems matter. Like the systems we're operating in matter. They dictate what's possible for us, what we even believe to be possible.
2: Right. So
3: thank you so much for bringing that perspective to the the whole graduate school discussion.
2: Yeah, no problem. You know, I, I think an entire self care industry even emerged out of this. Internal contradiction of the culture, right? And the other thing I, I quickly want to add is that these ideas may be new in this like Ivy League environment, but they're definitely not new in places where you know students are paid way less than us, have to be teaching for their stipends, right? Like I mean, CUNY, for example, is so radical with their student organizing, and I, I know I found in my experience that it was really hard trying to get students to think a little bit radically. And I hope, you know, I I can encourage the listeners.
1: Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Politics Under the Microscope. We hope you enjoyed this conclusion to our mental health episode series. Nina, you've disabled screen sharing. Hey, I just made you
0: co-host. I'm sorry, can everyone go on mute? I think someone's stuck in the waiting room. You're breaking up again, Ellie.
1: The recording has stopped. Politics Under the Microscope would like to thank the National Science Policy Network, NSPN, Science Education and Policy Association, (SEPA), and the Rockefeller Inclusive Science Initiative, FreeC, for their support.